Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Blake Robbins, partner at Ludlow Ventures. How's it going, Blake? It's going well. I'm excited to be here. I, I appreciate you you having me on. Absolutely. I mean, you're 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 sort of a big deal, so I'm I'm very glad I was able to get oh, you on. No, no, no. That is that is definitely not true. Uh, you are a big deal, and you are balancing <laughs> far more than I am right now. So I, I'm 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 impressed. Thank you. I appreciate it. So just to kick it off, you know, I would love to just hear sort of about your background and and how you got to this point. Yeah, absolutely. So I I was born and raised in in the suburbs of Detroit. Uh, always just sort of assumed that end up in automotive. That was basically all I knew. I I assumed like, well, I, I knew from a very young age that I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was like, okay, well, if I don't want to be one of those two things, then like there's something business related. And in my mind, business just meant automotive. I very quickly uh, sort of just focused my entire career around like, okay, I'm going to just, or like my, my school and all of that, that I was going to end up in the automotive industry. I went to uh, Michigan state and actually studied like supply chain management and operations like that that's how much i believe that i was going to work in the automotive industry is i started to study like manufacturing and operations in that world yeah. uh very quickly realized when i when i got to college that i like didn't want to work at a fortune 500 company i was like this seems like they're they don't maybe don't appreciate their employees or whatever it was like they actually the real tipping point was i was a freshman and i really wanted an internship and all these people were like we're not taking freshman interns and i was mm -hmm. just like oh this is annoying like what there has to be some business that that actually wants to take on freshman interns or uh i don't know helps aspiring you know business people and i learned just like by googling what startups were and became obsessed with startups and i was like okay this seems really cool uh it seems like they actually really value their employees and like i want to go and work at some really like early stage company and so i just started cold emailing startups off of like TechCrunch at the time this is 2011 2012 mm -hmm. maybe and there was a company that thankfully like the, it was a startup uh called zarly and they sort of were like hey you could do campus marketing and through that just discovered the world of, of like startups and then eventually venture capital uh, and parlayed like my internships in college at like SpaceX and Nest and uh, General Assembly and a bunch of random places to then be like, okay, I want to break into venture capital and uh, convince the firm where I'm at now, Ludlow, to, mm -hmm. to take a bet on me my senior year and have been here, yeah, almost five years full-time now. So you, you sort of casually say, you know, 2011, 2012, you started reaching out to people, but you know, I, I think you're sort of understanding how ahead of the game you were, right? So in 2011, how old were you? Uh, I was 17. Right. So, yeah. you know, most people are not reaching out to to startups at age 17. Uh, you know, so you're definitely way ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, but look, there, there at that time, I was also reading about, you know, like these 15 year old whiz kids who were like, <laughs> you know, building apps and already were winning like these scholarships from Apple and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, I was like, I'm late. Like, I, I need to figure <laughs> out how to, how to catch up. And right. uh, I, I think if like anyone is listening to this and like, I think at any point it will always seem 
like you're late. And I, yeah, at the time I, I genuinely thought I was late and I was like, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to break in. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm super fortunate that I was able to, but I, I was also very shameless during that time. Like I just didn't care. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to email as many people as possible. And like, I'm just going to reach out to as many people as possible. Cause I was like, I have nothing to lose. I actually genuinely had like nothing to lose. Worst case <laughs> scenario, I was going to just go work at some fortune 500 company, but I was right. like, I want to try and break into this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it looks like it definitely paid off. So what does Ludlow focus on, uh, both as far as stage of investment and sectors that you guys focus on? Yeah, we're we're a small team of three. Uh, we're on a, a, a new fund, which is a $60 million fund. Very early stage is our focus. Like we, we primarily focus on pre-seed and seed as our entry point. And then you know, we'll follow on in series A's and series B's of existing companies. But any company you see in our portfolio, uh, like that was an early, early stage check at a seed mm-hmm. or pre-seed. And we are fairly generalists, like, and especially my, my other two partners are very generalists. I would say my public facing brand is, is very much in gaming and mm-hmm. in content creators and new media and that world. But that's really out of personal interest more than anything else. Like right. all of the investments that I've sourced at, at Ludo, you know, let's call it only like five of however many I've done or, mm-hmm. or in that space, you know, like, so it's, it's, it's a smaller chunk uh, than, than most people would think. Got it. So we're definitely going to dive more into sort of your, your gaming background uh, a bit later, but first, you know, you started sort of alluding to this, but how did you actually become a partner at such a young age? Yeah, honestly, it's a really good question. I, I think for me, I, I just sort of viewed it as like, I just want to break in the venture. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any, like, I, I like, I assumed I would want to get to a partner or something like that at some point. But and for me, it was just like, I just want to get in the venture and I want to prove my worth and I want to mm-hmm. grind like as hard as I can to prove that like it was worth taking a bet on me. And so when my two partners at Ludo hired me, I was like, whoa, okay. I really need to like <laughs> prove that, that like, I'm going to like, I can carry my weight here. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to either of them, they would say like the reason that they even hired me back in the day was that I had like a different network network than them already. And, and that sounds obviously insane because they're <laughs> both VCs and early right. stage VCs and already were very well connected, but I was already like trying to blog and be very public on Twitter mm-hmm. and those things. And I was just like sending them meeting notes of, Hey, I'm this random, you know, <laughs> like, like I was like basically sending them meeting notes of I'm this like college student or I'm just front, like new grad who's mm-hmm. getting meetings with these really big VCs or big founders or whatever it was. And they were like, okay, like let's continue to take a bet on this person because he somehow is meeting these people. <laughs> but I think over time, like my, my, I like, and I give a lot of credit to my two partners because I think mm-hmm. like it, it took a lot of courage to make me a partner when I'm, I'm so young, right. but I've, I've proven, like, I think I've proven that I can source a lot of deals and I have a really net, like good network and I can, you know, add a lot of value. And I think there's a lot of smaller pieces in all of that, but mm-hmm. collectively, I think it's just that I've was, I, I think I've proved my worth so far, but obviously, you know, this is a long game. And, and I think for a lot of reasons, it's like, let's continue to just put our heads down. Right. So how were you able to build this network originally? Is it just through sort of the other branding stuff that you were doing? Yeah, I think for me, I viewed it like I, I again, born and raised in the suburbs of Detroit, mm-hmm. went to Michigan State. 
I realized if I wanted to break into venture or tech, I need to figure out a way to like break through the noise. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I would just wasn't going to like stand out as like this supply chain major from Michigan <laughs> state trying to break into venture or tech. Like that just yeah. wasn't a thing. And so what I, I viewed it as like, I need to find a way to break through this noise. And for me, Twitter and blogging was my like main way to do that. Like, mm-hmm. and specifically Twitter in the early days, I didn't start blogging until I probably got into venture and I still am pretty sporadic with blogging. Like I'm far from consistent on that side, but Twitter for me was in my mind, like this, this times square of like, okay, I are like a, I I can go and actually talk and put my thoughts out there. Mm -hmm. And by the way, like I tweeted for, probably three years or four years with like no one ever even paying attention. <laughs> like I, I actually look insane. If you go back to those early <laughs> tweets, it's cause it's like, I was tweeting every day or multiple times a day with literally no engagement, no, no likes, nothing. Uh, but I just started, like, I, I just acted like I belonged. If that makes sense. Like yeah. I was just like, I'm now a part of these circles. Like I started just like brute force myself <laughs> in, into these worlds. And uh, thankfully people started to pay attention. And I think over time, the nice thing about like Twitter is that uh, I use Twitter in the context of like, I can put my thoughts out there or make predictions or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And like people can still see those. And so like people can see when I make a bold prediction about content creators or gaming or esports or whatever it is. And eventually people will just be like, Whoa, okay. Like this, who is this person? I should follow <laughs> this person. Right. Uh, and thankfully like it's compounded over time. But again, those early, early years of it, like when I was in college, literally no one was reading my <laughs> tweets and it's funny like I'll, I'll try and experiment just as like a joke of let me just like recycle a tweet from you know 2012 or 2013 and just like tweet the same exact thing i tweeted then and just see like how much better it performs because it is insane that like that tweet you know has like literally one like from back then. Like, <laughs> no one no one knew that uh i even existed or that i was tweeting at that time yeah so you know gaming twitter has actually been a thing for quite some time so at what point did you become sort of you know quote unquote relevant within gaming twitter Ooh, that's a good question i think there was there was a point where maybe it's 2014 2015 Mm -hmm. uh where a lot of people were starting to dive deeper in esports and gaming Mm -hmm. and i was like this is weird i i've loved this space and and i feel like i can you know talk about this space all day and so i wrote a like a esports landscape piece uh that basically just mapped out the entire landscape of like all the companies all the major players the Mm -hmm. major organizations all of that and i think when i put that out there people were like whoa uh especially i would say more like commentators and attorney organizers and more the business side of esports and gaming were like who is this kid who's like writing all this and and putting all these thoughts out there. That was when it started to snowball. Uh, And then after that, I just continued to lean into more of that because I was like, oh, I guess I should be talking about like esports and gaming. This is weird. Like, let me talk more about these things. And uh, over time, again, it's just snowballed into people discovering or finding my Twitter. And Mm -hmm. I've, it's strange for me because growing up, a lot of these people were like people that I looked up to or I watched. Yeah. this is crazy to now be interacting with them or like call them my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, that's happened over the past, you know, four or five years of just continuing to, to talk about the space. So you mentioned, you know, mostly on the business side, but what about on the actual, like either content creator or competitor side? Because I know you, you're pretty yep. well connected on that side as well. Yeah. 
I would say that's happened over time. Like the first major content creator that I linked up with was Nate Shot, who's uh, the CEO of Hundred Thieves, and that was. I honestly don't know how that like happened. Like it sounds insane to tell the story, <laughs> but the story is basically he had followed me at one point and uh, I don't know when, but I, I mean, I'm sure if you go back, you could see, I probably tweeted to him for like 30 tweets over the course <laughs> of like a year and, and had no responses. But I guess one of those times he liked the tweets and was like, Hey, I'm going to follow this person. And if you ask him now, he would say like, he thought that I was just a, like a scam artist almost because he's like, <laughs> what this who is this kid that looks like he's 12 who uh you know has, has worked at like spacex and these places yeah uh, and i think over time I, I started to dm him and was just like hey you should do something bigger with 100ds you should do something bigger with all this and mm-hmm. uh eventually he he paid attention and sort of like uh you know eventually we've built a great relationship and, mm-hmm. and he's a good friend now but having that domino fall or like have that work out, I think, you know, again, snowballed into, okay, now a lot more creators within the space respect me or are willing to talk to me uh, because so much of the space is like, you just need to find a way in. If you're just a mm-hmm. random person reaching out to them, there's so much noise. There's so many people reaching out to them that for me, it was like, I need to find a way in. And thankfully, Nate was one of those people that just paid attention and was willing to like talk to me at that time. Who's the biggest person that follows you on Twitter that you know of? Ooh, probably probably mr beast i'm assuming like i don't know how big he actually is on 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 twitter but like i think he's got to be the biggest person on twitter that follows me that i can think of sure um okay so you mentioned 100 thieves you know i would love to hear this story sort of in detail because i actually think this story is fascinating that you actually played a pretty key part in the formation of 100 thieves which for those who don't know is one of the largest you know I guess esports, but more content, gaming content creation organizations out there right now. Uh, Shout out to Courage, uh, JD, (laughs) Jack Dunlop, who is a gamer I used to play with daily, you know, back in the day when I was doing my thing in Halo. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I I mean, I think for me, 100 Thieves is a good example of just like random serendipity and what happens when, you know, just you have the right people at the table. So mm-hmm. for context, one of the biggest LPs in our fund is, is Dan Gilbert owns the Cavs and Quicken mm-hmm. loans. And uh, I mean, so many other companies, but uh, he was spending time thinking about esports, and him and his team were thinking about esports. this again, probably 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking to teams and other organizations. And we talked with quite a few teams and organizations through some like weird luck i had started to write those posts uh, about the esports landscape at that time and someone was like hey uh you should actually bring in blake to to like talk about this stuff and so mm-hmm. i did a presentation on like you know what is esports what's the landscape again like basically that blog post but to like <laughs> Dan and his team yeah uh, and they were already talking to some teams at this point so they had a pretty good understanding the rumor at that time was you know, Overwatch League was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Activision or uh, and, and League of Legends was going to do franchising, all of this stuff. And we were trying to figure out, okay, uh, how do we prepare for that? What does it mean to buy a team, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we were to buy a team at that point, does that mean we also then have to pay a big franchise fee? Yeah. All of these things were completely unanswered. And on the owner side, who wasn't already tied to these leagues or had connections to those leagues, we were sort of navigating a blind. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there and and I'm like, 
I don't know. Like, what if, what if we like try and build our own team? Because at that point, I think it was Team Liquid had just announced that they had gotten acquired, uh, mm-hmm. and and I think that was like right around Axiomatic time. Those numbers were like rumored, and it was like, okay, what's going to happen here? Uh, and we we're like, what if we try and build our own team? And mm-hmm. I maybe stupidly threw out like, <laughs> hey, there's this guy named Nate Chat who has this brand. And, and again, for context, Nate Chat is a big YouTuber yeah. uh, and, a, and one of the best Call of Duty players of all time. Mm-hmm. He was a part of an organization called Optic, which is still one of the biggest names in, in gaming today. Mm-hmm. He had left Optic, was doing his own YouTube channel, started a brand called 100 Thieves, which was purely like an apparel brand, struggled as a uh a call of duty team in the first season like he mm-hmm. just tried to run it and eventually uh when when that was sitting dormant i brought up the idea internally to dan and the team and i was mm-hmm. like hey there's this dormant brand this creator i think could be amazing as a ceo uh and i think he wants to build something bigger i knew Nate again basically as a fan and a follower yeah but I knew basically nothing else about him <laughs> uh, and uh, he ended up like I, basically everyone on Dan's side was like that sounds awesome like why yeah. didn't you mention this you know a month ago like what <laughs> like we, we've gone deep with all these teams you should for sure uh go and and, and like message him and and we should talk to him mm-hmm. I went and messaged Nate right after and I was like hey, there's this billionaire that wants to talk (laughs) and like uh, we should try and figure something out. And he just straight up ignored me. And and, and you can look back at like my DMs and there's (laughs) probably a month and a half of me spamming like almost every other day. dude there's there's a billionaire who wants to talk to you and yeah. i think we can do something really cool around 100 thieves please respond mm-hmm. i remember he actually like responded at one point was like nah i'm good i have money like we're, <laughs> we're good like we don't we don't need money and eventually i was like is there a way that we can get like nba finals tickets this is yeah 2015 2016 mm-hmm. uh and eventually someone was like yes we can get nba final tickets and i was like let me just try and dangle this in front of uh nate chat and see if this is how we can get him to meet with us yeah they uh i I sent him a message the moment that we got like approval for these Mm -hmm. nba final tickets and he immediately responded was like (laughs) okay yes of course when like when when do i hop on the next flight you know type of thing and he flew out uh this is when we were playing golden state and he Mm -hmm. flew out to the bay area uh when we were out there for a game we met we spent like an entire weekend just going back and forth on like what we would want to do. Mm-hmm. And nature basically immediately was like, Oh my gosh, this is like the coolest thing ever. We should for sure do this. What do we do? You know, all these next steps. And uh, from that, we spent, you know, the next six months to a year or so quietly just scoping out what this would look like and, mm-hmm. and how we would build it all out. And that has been uh, like, that was a really amazing experience. And uh, I was super, super involved in getting that off the ground of hiring, like the John Robinson and Jackson and, and uh, even like the first video editors, like, you know, like all yeah. that side of it. Uh, and like sort of like pseudo GM to the league of legends team during that time, it was a really crazy transformative time. And that, mm-hmm. that at, at that time, because nature again still had to be this public figure he didn't even know if this deal was going to go through he was like i need to continue to make my youtube content (laughs) and uh that was a really interesting balance but 
yeah, still on the board there, still very, very involved, still close mm -hmm. with all of them. Uh, but the early sort of first year or so um, was really sort of knee deep in, in helping them get off the ground. So before the industry sort of grew up and these uh, esports organizations became, you know, I don't know if more corporate is the right term, you know, but more, more formal, I guess, you, you know, and sort of back when I was playing random people who are like pretty big in these gaming communities would just like come up and be like, Hey, I'm starting an org like with my buddies, you know, and then there were like yep. tons of those and they didn't go anywhere. So how did you see the transformation, um, you know, from sort of those days where it's just a bunch of random people <laughs> trying to make organizations to today, you know, where you actually have these huge, well-funded organizations, like how did you, how are you able to see that playing out so early? Yeah. I, I think for me, at that time, like there were, you know, again, these sort of organizations that mm -hmm. had established, a lot of them were CEOs that sort of just, like you said, were there in the early days and have continued right. to carry it through. That was one piece that, that always stuck with us of mm -hmm. like, we really like this brand, we like what they stand for, and they clearly have a big fan base. But like, is this, you know, the CEO that can run this into like being a you know, billion dollar business, right? We didn't know. And that gave us a lot of pause and gave us some, I don't know, just like internal reflection of like, okay, well, we don't want to make a bet on a team that we don't know what, like, if that's the right executive team. Mm -hmm. And so this opportunity with 100 Thieves was a really rare, and, and I say this is like, if we didn't do 100 Thieves, I don't know if we would have made another bet in the mm -hmm. space. Um, because we were so focused on like, we need to find the right person on the public figure side. Uh, and just like from a pure media and branding and understanding that side of this world. And then we wanted to help bring in uh, just like a good business team and executive team around him. Uh, and that's basically what played out. I mean, like we brought in some really amazing people like John Robinson, who mm -hmm. actually used to be an investor at Bessemer uh, and, and was really involved with, with their esports initiatives. We convinced him to come over and, and become the COO uh, and, and president of, of 100 Thieves. And that's mm -hmm. been, uh, that was transformative. You know, having someone who's very deep on that side of this world and understands the business nuances of running just a business in general right. uh, and scaling a business is very different than maybe someone who's just used to like scaling uh, sort of the early days of, of esports and gaming. I yeah. think for, for me, uh, we were always very focused on like, we don't know what is going to happen with, with esports and esports mm -hmm. leagues. We, you know, directionally believe it will be a big thing. We think it is still going to be a big thing. Uh, but we also knew that there was a, a play around media and apparel and that side of this and in like the short term short to mm -hmm. medium term and you know like the long term is that esports and all that also continues to play out um and so the a huge part of the strategy for 100 thieves even in the earliest days was was lean really heavily into apparel and media mm -hmm. and let's try and win because we need to win like winning would be the dream but right. just on a pure like revenue side like expecting the revenues to grow from that uh we didn't expect that to be like the biggest revenue driver mm -hmm. we thought the media assets and the apparel side would be much bigger uh in the short term and i think a lot of other teams at, at that time we're just like, we're going to win and we're going to focus on winning. And that's going to be what pays the bills for us. We were trying to think about it in a different way. I, I think for me, my inspiration was looking at optic and phase at that time mm -hmm. uh, and viewing like what can happen if you build sort of like a, 
cleaner phase or or something like that um mm-hmm. is, is how i was trying to view it at the time makes sense so you know investments in esports and sort of content streaming orgs in gaming was pretty hot for a minute and then it's it's sort of cooled yeah. down and so how do you look at the future of these uh these organizations both on the business side and then as far as like the appetite uh for investors, do you expect that to sort of heat up again in the future? Yeah, I think, look, it's a space where there was a lot of hype and FOMO and whatever else. I think if you're any any investor, like mm-hmm. pretty much across the board from private equity, venture capital to family offices, has probably looked at an esports team at this point. Uh, right. And I think that is in large part due to the sheer amount of hype that the space got. The thing that I I try and view it as is like there was a period, you know, for the past 10 years where everyone sort of just ignored the hype. Like mm-hmm. no, one, no one was even paying attention to esports. And there's sort of this like weird everyone, like someone turned on the flashlights and just was like, hey, look, here's the, the space that is sort of just exists in front of you. No one's really paying attention to it. Right. And I think I caught a lot of people off guard and they're like, wow, we need to make an investment here. We need to make a move here. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously with franchising and, and those moves, uh, it woke a lot of people up and they're like, wow, we can finally get upside in these things. I think we are in a point right now where some of these teams are overvalued, quote unquote. Sure. I think there is going to be some type of correction but like that's what any industry that moves fast i think the the core businesses or like the core teams that you know are running it as a real business Mm -hmm. will be around for a while and i hope that any investor that is in this space is viewing this as like a long-term play rather than just a short like hey this is going to be a traditional venture bet uh that just takes off to the moon in like Mm -hmm. five years or ten years i think uh this is you know, a real asset in the same way that you would, you if you owned an NBA team for the past 50 years, you know, you'd be the happiest person ever if you right. held that spot for 50 right. years. I think you have to be uh, viewing this in, in some ways around that. And, uh, and as these teams raise and as they set expectations, it's just really important that everyone's aligned and understands mm-hmm. because uh, the teams that have I don't know, like the deepest pockets or the mm-hmm. deepest access to money will be the ones that really do continue to like uh, have compounding effects of growing their brand and their fan base because there are going to be teams that that fold out or there's going to be things that happen over the next you know 10 years mm-hmm. that these teams need to be ready to pay up for. There's certain players that they can sign. I think it's it's still the early days. There yeah. was just misaligned expectations, I think, in, at some point. And so mm-hmm. a lot of investors are like, ooh, it's getting expensive. <laughs> uh, but I think it, it it will come back to reality at some point here. Right. And then, so do you think the accelerant is going to be better infrastructure uh, of, you know, of the leagues or better setups by the leagues? Or do you think it's actually that a better game is needed to implement the already in-place infrastructure, right? And using an example, like I think Overwatch is a fantastic game. You know, the Overwatch League, though, has probably been somewhat disappointing. I think one reason for it, frankly, is that that watching Overwatch is very, very difficult and almost like nauseating if you don't know what's going on. It's it's insane to watch. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what do you think? I think it's it, it, the answer to that might be both, right? Like I think there is some piece of this where I uh, like teams, you know, or, or like the leagues themselves 
can use or like listen to their fan bases better their audience better mm-hmm. and they're like hey this isn't a thing or this is a thing i think there's going to be tons of lessons learned over the past five years and especially over the next five years mm-hmm. of what not to do or what to do as a league within esports i think getting more involvement from the owners I th- there, this has always been the biggest gripe with esports right. and and just gaming in general is that the developers hold a lot of power Mm -hmm. and in a lot of cases like up until five years ago most of these developers just viewed esports purely as a marketing channel and it was just this wasn't like let's make organizations rich or players rich or anything like that it was like Mm -hmm. We're going to have this thing on the side of uh, like that, that just exists as a marketing channel. Mm -hmm. And I think that now that there is real money, real teams, real, you know, infrastructure on the organization side here, uh, there's more pressure on the the game developers themselves Mm -hmm. to be like, Hey, this is like, let's run this like the NFL. Let's let's run this like the NBA. Let's go and get media rights. Let's, you know, think about actually like maximizing, you know, revenue for the league and, and that side. I think that will happen over time. There's going to be growing pains and that like a lot of these people that are running these leagues might not have that experience. They might yeah. not even understand those expectations. Uh, I think there is like the other side of that is that you can imagine a world where like uh, a new game comes out, a new first person shooter comes out mm-hmm. and maybe they partner with the 10 best teams and are like in, in the world. And they're like, Hey, do you want to have upside or economics in this? Uh, if so, like, build a team for this and you know help pay for salaries on that side and yeah if there's there's going to be innovative models here where it's trying to just create more alignment amongst everyone not Mm -hmm. just the owners and the developers it's also going to be aligning like the players with that ecosystem as well and the casual fan with that ecosystem and so that's what i'm more excited about than anything else is just uh, there's going to be more new games that pop up. Like yeah. I, I, I tend to believe that like League of Legends will be around for a hundred years, which <laughs> is incredibly biased because I just play way too much League of Legends. Sure. And, but I do think uh, there are going to be new games that that emerge, mm-hmm. and uh, the games that you know embrace the openness and uh, are willing to partner with the teams or the players or whatever it might be uh, are going to like reap a lot of the benefits. Okay, so that's a great segue actually into my next question. And I know you and I have actually discussed this quite a bit, you know, but a quick history lesson, right? You know, back in the day, serious gamers really primarily cared about competition and being the best gamers, right? And then I think most people who were serious gamers at the time believed the best gamers were going to become the highest paid gamers, you know, the most successful, et cetera. And then, you know, with games like Fortnite and just more casual gamers coming into the fold, you know, obviously the industry has sort of gone in a different direction. You have people like Ninja and some of the other huge streamers who are just absolutely crushing it from a financial standpoint. Uh, whereas esports uh, in the purest, most competitive sense have become, I don't know if niche is the right word, right? But it's certainly not the main focus, at least the way I see it. And so do you think there's a world where this sort of flip-flops or the gap closes and, you know, the highest quality, best, most skilled gamers are, you know, sort of the most popular as you see in, for the most part, in traditional sports? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question. I think that it is one that is like the answer to that question is filled with so many nuances Mm -hmm. in that it largely depends on the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think 
you know, in League of Legends, a lot of the biggest streamers like a double list or someone like that is one of the best players in the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's more uh, closer to that. And the biggest streamers in League of Legends, maybe they aren't uh, the best at the professional level, but they Mm -hmm. are certainly at the top, you know, 0.001% or something like that. And I think when you look at, you know, Fortnite, it might just be more entertainment value. Mm -hmm. And that like, you have people who are good, but like not the top 0.001% and definitely not even top 1000 players in the game. That is the, the, the thing that we are still trying to learn or explore is like, for the most part, the best players of these games might not even actually stream because mm-hmm. they just want to play and practice. Right, right. Maybe they want to hide their strategies, whatever it might be. And you see it in Fortnite a lot mm-hmm. where like the best players barely stream. Uh, and you know, maybe other than like Booga at this point, who's yeah. uh, clearly made a name for himself after winning uh Fortnite world cup. Yeah. But like that is like, they're not always going to be aligned. You, What I think is going to just happen more and more over time is you're going to see really big players or really big names in these games make it far in tournaments. Uh, like, even, like, an XQC who, like, blew up from Overwatch and being on Overwatch team mm-hmm. and then, like, had his own drama and controversy. But <laughs> that led to him blowing up as a streamer. I think in a lot of ways like that will just continue to happen in the same way that you see some big names happen in professional sports right. where like they get involved with some drama and then they become <laughs> a public figure and then they're like okay now they're now they're big names and yeah the difference in this world is that they don't need to be on a team they can just go independent and go stream if mm-hmm. like that stuff happens uh and there's a balance where like the entertainers can make more money than the professional players and mm-hmm. so like uh and in most cases outside of maybe league of legends like that is for sure the case yeah. right like uh, and and so it really depends on on the game more than anything else because it will flip at some point where like if the professional players are the ones that are making the most money uh in that game then like you're gonna see those people also stream and become right. the big right. like faker is one of the biggest names in esports but he doesn't stream as much like as as another league streamer but he still gets 20 30,000 viewers in, in the west when he goes live so uh yeah i i think it will just happen over time got it and then i guess how do you think about the salary side right so outside of a small group of you know sort of the top talent in the top games in nearly every game even people at the very highest point uh in of competition right like if you think of like fighting games for example the very best fighting game players aren't making tons and tons of money from competitions and so how do you think about the best talent getting paid purely for their talent i mean i think it's great like if they but the thing is that they also like if you're the best player in the world but you also don't make content around yourself Mm -hmm. then it's the same thing that happens in traditional sports and that like uh even if you are the best player if you aren't marketing yourself as well then like you're not going to maybe make as much as someone who's like the third best but is marketing themselves incredibly well right Uh, and i think like this there are two in the same now like you can't you can't have one without the other especially Mm -hmm. in esports where the audience is digitally native uh like you need to be thinking about your personal brand and, and just like how you're going to grow, obviously being the best player in the world and being marketable is the dream, Yeah, but it's not always going to happen like that. And uh, I think that is just, that will just be explored over time. And I I think it's, it's still 
we're in the very early days of figuring all that out. Makes sense. So shifting gears, you know, you mentioned you're playing a lot of League of Legends. What other gaming are you doing these days? Ooh, I play way too much League of Legends, <laughs> like by far. Uh, I also play a bit of Valorant. I used mm-hmm. to play a lot of Counter-Strike back in the day. Uh, that was always sort of my game of choice before. I Like way, way back in the day, I played like Halo and Call of Duty. Right. And uh, my parents actually wouldn't let me like get a gaming PC when I was growing up because they were like, <laughs> going to be too addicted. And they yeah. were right honestly uh, and so uh once i got to like out of college i, I started playing counter-strike when i got a gaming pc became mm-hmm. obsessed with that then moved into league of legends and have been obsessed ever since started dabbling back into valorant i mean i play a decent amount of mobile games as well like mm-hmm. i actually like i play like arch hero and these like random mobile games yeah, all the time yeah. just because they're fun but uh when i actually have time to play games i'm I'm usually just hopping to a league of legends game mm-hmm. what do you think about the mobile esports landscape uh or just more hardcore gaming uh you know being yeah. done on mobile i think it will it will continue to evolve i i like i think if the west is any indicator or like if the east is any indicator here it's going to be a thing uh with free fire and that side of this space i think we will it will take the west a little bit longer to catch up but it will for sure be a thing and and it makes sense like our our iphones and uh android devices are like becoming super computers right uh and and i think we're like we are in a phase of gaming where uh i don't know a couple of years ago, the, sh- the big shift was free to play. And like most games are realizing, Hey, I need to be games as a service. I need to become free to play like this $60, you know, whatever retail box isn't going to work anymore. Mm-hmm. I think we are also in a phase right now that that Fortnite also pioneered and that like cross platform is, is the norm as well. Like if you are a big AAA <laughs> publisher or if you're just a big game launching, like you should also be thinking about how to launch on mobile because it's like a no brainer at this right. point. And, mm-hmm. uh, that will just continue to happen. And like, you can imagine like Call of Duty Mobile has so many users. Yeah. Uh, and I bet you like, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I bet you the monetization on that is like close to to like consoles, if not like, you know, like right on par with that. And right. so uh, that side of this is only going to continue to grow as more people realize like mobile is something they can't ignore. Or if they are ignoring it, they're just leaving a ton of money and like users on the table. Mm-hmm. So you guys are invested in a company called Backbone. Um, yep. And you know, I'm just curious, you know, just quickly, if you could introduce what Backbone is and how your investment in Backbone fits into that thesis. Yeah, Backbone is is actually like, I, I view it as, I mean, it's a controller for your iPhone mm-hmm. uh, is the quick pitch, but I view it as almost airpods ask like in where you plug it in it's this really magical experience mm-hmm. and it shows you like your friends list very reminiscent of like xbox live days uh your friends get notifications when you jump into games mm-hmm. but it makes it this really seamless experience of like jumping into call of duty like i am the person who would have never played call of duty on their phone because i just genuinely it was like i can't play touch controls but when you plug in a backbone it actually feels like you're playing on a console like i don't i doubt that i will plug in my console ever again to play call of duty (laughs) because i'm like getting 98 percent of the experience here and uh that is it's just a really simple out of the box like plug in get like call of duty minecraft stardew valley all of those games that 
are these cross-platform type of games. And then there's there's going to be more games over time. Uh, again, like sort of betting on that free-to-play and cross-platform are the norm. We're going to see way more games be pushed out on, on mobile as well. And for the most part, you actually see a lot of these games not even optimized for mobile in the sense of like like of controls they're literally just like throwing them on there like in my mind like call of duty like is just like hey we have touch controls right play if you want to but like (laughs) it is by far like night and day experience if you just use a controller Mm -hmm. and i think that will just continue to happen like genshin impact as well like you could use touch controls right now if you want to on mobile Mm -hmm. but like you can also just plug in your backbone and and (laughs) you can use a controller and that's like a 900 times better experience i think in in a lot of ways backbone is unlocking what we've seen with like psps back in the day or Mm -hmm. nintendo switch where like your phone is actually now just like so powerful though (laughs) like it's it's like more powerful than nintendo switch yeah uh but like no one is really using it in this context and uh i think it it can unlock a lot of stuff like going back to the esports side of this like you can imagine if backbone becomes big enough then like this actually becomes um maybe like a norm for for call of duty mobile leagues and so it's like everyone on here is playing with backbones i think that will happen over time though Mm-hmm. PSP is a huge throwback, by the way. <laughs> oh, the best! I, I PSPs were like my my favorite things, as, like <laughs> as a kid. I just loved that that experience so much. Yeah. Um, okay, so just generally, what are some of the larger trends within gaming that you're most interested in, either as a gamer or as an investor? Ooh, does it have to be like gaming specific, or could it be around like the culture of gaming? And it can and be. Yeah, world? it can be ancillary as well. Because I, I think the one trend that I'm like most interested on like the new media side right now is just around like VTubers and what's going to happen around sort of like anonymous streamers and, you know, or like pseudonymous streamers. Yeah. And I think what we've seen with even like Dream or Corpse Husband and these names where mm-hmm. like they're blowing up as huge figures within gaming, but no one knows their real identity. Mm-hmm. I think that piece is just, fascinating to think about and i think more and more people are going to want to decouple like their public personality and their identity from their like gaming personality and identity Mm -hmm. and i think vtubers you know are clearly big in in the east but i think we're gonna they're gonna have a real moment and like we see with code miko and and things like that that are uh starting to to blow up here but it's i think we are in the very first inning of, of that um and i and i think just in gaming in general like I think we're in a very golden age of all this where uh, there's more studios like being funded than like ever before. (laughs) Like, you know, and, uh, and like you just see like how quickly these studios are being funded because people are realizing they're real, you know, they're real businesses that uh, have real durability. I'm very interested in, in maybe just like more broadly applying game mechanics uh to like other verticals like Mm -hmm. that's the thing that i'm probably most obsessed with these days in general is like how do you apply like level systems or battle passes or like these type of things to other industries or other products whether that's like education or uh you know stocks or whatever it might be like I, i imagine that like game mechanics will be ported into every part of our like lives on the consumer side um and 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 because in my mind game mechanics actually just means like retention right. uh, and and so uh like why not learn from what's the best in this regard uh, i think that will happen over 
you know, the next couple of years. And, and mm-hmm. we're going to look back and be like, wow, like <laughs> everything just turned into a game without us realizing. Yeah. And what are maybe like one or two of these areas that you think is most, uh, most interesting or most, most ripe to be gamified? Ooh, I think like, I think specifically like finance is mm-hmm. one area where even just like day trading and yeah. that like uh, that side of this feels like most people in that world are viewing this as a game anyways, which there's tons of pros and cons <laughs> and like ethics around and all of that stuff. Right, but right. Uh, we are for sure seeing that side is, is one piece. Mm-hmm. But I think honestly, education is probably the other and that like, I think you can like gamifying things in the right way can encourage people to learn or like push them towards like, like rewarding them for doing certain things. Mm-hmm. I think that is really can be like something for good in, in the education space. And so I'm curious to see if anyone can nail that in, in like, Hey, read this textbook, take the quiz, get, you know, points, whatever. But like, yeah. you can imagine it being like, you get these certain rewards and it, it really starts to, um, to scale over time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this investing stuff, uh, you know, to your point is getting, getting somewhat out of hand you could see or people could suggest so have you been following all of this nft hype uh nba top shot is you know one of the hottest things right now yep yeah yeah i've been i've been spending a lot of time digging into all this and Mm -hmm. uh yeah and and just trying to figure out how to filter through the noise and i think we're we're in the very early days of what all this means and Mm -hmm. and there's going to be tons of yeah, just way more noise. And uh, I, I think Top Shot is a really interesting example of, mm-hmm. you know, what this could all lead to. I think there's always a question of like utility and the gamer in me like loves this stuff because I mean, I, I still have a huge inventory in Counter-Strike, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and, like I barely even play that game anymore, but I probably have like several thousand dollars worth of, of Counter-Strike skin sitting in my inventory. Like <laughs> I understand this piece, like, and I, 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 it probably makes more sense to me than, most people like are like especially from the gaming side like you as well like understand i think uh it's trying like the thing that i'm struggling with is like where does the utility or what does this kick into like that's where i'm excited to see where that plays out and how much of this do you think is just sort of hype and nonsense versus actually being somewhat legitimate Ooh. um I think that like a lot of it and, and and I've talked with a lot of people is like mm-hmm. there's 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 a lot of noise. I would say like a majority of it is noise. Yeah. And you know, you're gonna see some random piece of art sell for an insane amount of money or like mm-hmm. a random song or album art sell for lots of money. That's noise. I think like the underlying technology that is there or like the underlying premise, I think is interesting and in that mm-hmm. like we might finally have a way to you know, like figure out just how you can have digital media proliferate and like go to crazy levels without having to like deal with DMCA, but like you actually just have everyone have upside. Like those things make sense to me. I think we are just a vast majority of it is noise. And a lot of people will be like burned in the context of they might just buy things and think that there's value in it or whatever, but who knows? And, and, Mm -hmm. and for what it's worth, like, I think that it's not that like, it's very similar to uh, what's happening in like the collectible markets of like Pokemon and and sports cards. Like I think that space is all very, very interesting. The top, you know, 1% of those collectibles will be worth something, mm-hmm. but I think the middle area of that is going to get really messy. Uh, and like people are going to realize liquidity on, 
you know, a squirtle or something <laughs> like that isn't as good as they thought it was. Like, right. you, know, you hear these people be like, oh, this card's worth $60. You know, I was like, go try and sell it. You know, like, <laughs> let's, like let's, there's like how many listings on eBay for that price? Like you might, might get like $10 for that. Yeah. So uh, I think that's where like people will have this realization over time. But mm-hmm. I do believe in like, there, there can be value here and the technology itself could be really valuable though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's something that's a really interesting point, especially as I've been dabbling with Top Shot, right? You see some cards listed, you know, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but like, are people actually buying them for hundreds of thousands of dollars or buying them for like $20,000 or not? Yeah, yeah. It's like I could list my shoes for you know <laughs> $100,000, but like if the other ones are selling for, you know, like $1,000, then it's like, mm, okay, like which right. one do we actually report? on and and uh even like you know you see it in in more in the collectible side where like the auction houses themselves are propping these things up and you'll see them like and be like this pokemon card sold for like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then you're like but all the other ones just sold for like 75 what's going on uh and so there there is some of that happening right now within Mm -hmm. this space so blake you have your own podcast as well um what is it about and what is it called yeah, I, I have a podcast with one of my friends named Reed, uh, and, and it's a podcast called uh, Creator Economics. It's honestly, we started as a fun side project in, during quarantine where uh, we'd been talking pretty much every day about just like what's going on in the content creator world and mm-hmm. how creators can build bigger businesses around themselves. Reed is uh, the CEO of a, a management company called Night Media where he manages like Mr. Beast and typical gamer and Preston and a bunch of big names in in the creator space. Mm -hmm. He's very unique in that he's like the management companies that he runs. They're very focused on building like durable businesses around their creators. Like Preston has a Minecraft server business that does incredibly well. Mr. Beast has like Mr. Beast burger and that has, uh, and he has uh, like finger on the app and these products as well those are all things that they're trying to think about over time. And and so I just have a ton of alignment, like how do you build bigger businesses for creators is something I love. And mm-hmm. uh, the podcast is largely around either interviewing big creators or managers or people within the space trying to think through, uh, yeah, just like how this, this space evolves. So something that I've been thinking about a bunch lately in the creator space is just, you know, most of the economics accrue to the largest, you know, I don't know, 0.1% or 0.01% of creators. How do you think about the sort of small and mid-level creators unlocking their value? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's, it's for sure a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it, and problem in the context of like, the people who are getting a hundred thousand views should be able to make a real living off of this. Uh, I think that will, will come over time, but either from the platforms themselves, like YouTube and TikTok and these Mm -hmm. places trying to give them tools or people will build the tools themselves and be like, Hey, uh, you should be using Patreon. You should be using Gumroad, whatever the, like you should be using Cameo. Maybe you should have your own like private group where, yeah, the hundred like best fans of you are, are participating in it. I think we're in a really interesting time because there's so many of these companies that are popping up and being developed specifically around this like middle class of creators. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, in, in theory, there's never been a better time uh, to be a creator. And, and I think uh, it's going to be exciting to see how, what tools or, or products emerge for this, this like new type of creator. And uh the truth is like there's 
there's going to be like as a creator right now, you might not just be posting on YouTube. You might be also posting on Substack. You might also be posting on Twitter. You might be posting on TikTok. Like trying to figure out how to diversify, how to like which platforms give you the most money, mm-hmm. how to have more of a relationship with your your audience. I think all of those things are we are in like the first inning of actually figuring out how that's going to play out. But it's really exciting because if those things do transpire, which I think they will, then you've unlocked like an entirely new class of, of small businesses. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there might be hope for me as a podcaster. Look, I think so. <laughs> I, I don't know how many people listen to this or whatever, but like, Hey, maybe it's just like, maybe they want to tip you on when they listen to this or whatever it might right. be. But I, I do think that will happen. Like I think that those tools will be developed over mm-hmm. time. So just shifting gears and sort of as a concluding question, you know, you've, you've done a bunch, but you're still very, very young. And so how do you see your career sort of evolving uh, going forward? And what do you want to accomplish? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I said I, I didn't think about my future and now like, what do I you know, want over the next decade or mm-hmm. two or whatever? I think for me, I'm much more focused on like just zoning in on myself and that like I want the founders that I work with to really love me and mm-hmm. like speak very highly of me. I want, you know, the companies that I like invest in to be like directionally correct in that I hope that I am betting on the right theses and mm-hmm. the right trends, even if it might be early, but like if I, it's still the right spot, like I think uh, spending time with those people and going deep in these areas is something I always just want to pride myself on. I think, you know, as a fund, we're, we're in the earliest days as well. And we're trying to figure out where this all goes. We're very aware of where we play within the ecosystem. And like, we, we don't really have goals to build it past like three people. We want to continue to just do what we're doing because Mm -hmm. I think for me, like, I, I feel like I found my dream job and that like, I'm able to, you know, be a partner and, and, devote my time sort of however I want. And mm-hmm. if I wanted to go and read all day about gaming like I could, or if I wanted <laughs> to go and uh, do those things, like I, I have that autonomy and freedom, which is just amazing. Uh, and so I think we are in like the very early days of it, but for me, it's just continuing to do more of the same and like just build like a great reputation around myself, but like an authentic, you know, reputation where for me, I, I just want to be like the best version of myself. And I, sure. uh, I've always prided myself on like being able to put my head down and like I'm public in some regards of uh, like, I'll be on Twitter and those things, but like being in the suburbs of Detroit, which is where I'm still based. Yeah. Like I'm able to just put my head down and write and read and like just focus in and go down those rabbit holes. Like Mm -hmm. I just never want to lose that. Like I, if my schedule gets too nuts where I'm not able to do that, then like I've failed because I think that's when I'm like at my best. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Blake, thanks for joining me. It sounds like you have an exciting future ahead and I'll definitely be rooting for you. Thank you for having me on. Mm -hmm.